Before we get going, a content warning. There are discussions of child abuse, so you may want to skip this episode, although please be advised we don't get too graphic. So today's interview with Yehudis Fletcher is in two halves. I recorded the first half almost a year ago, and it's about her personal story. The second half was recorded a week or so ago, still with Yehudis, where I caught up with her again because so much had happened in between to see if her views had changed since the IICSA, Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse, hearings. Let's get into it. For this Bagel Bite, I'm joined by Yehudis Fletcher. How are you doing? Hi, Hayden. I'm doing great. Let's start by, just want to tell me a bit about your personal story. So I was um, brought up in Glasgow. My father was the rob of one of the shuls there. And I went to the Coddell School, which was basically an unregistered private school. And it was run in various people's houses, classrooms in the tops of shuls, very ad hoc. If there was a parent who could teach English, we learned English that year. And if they could get a hold of a geography teacher, we probably learned a bit of geography. But I had a really good grounding in Chumash Rashi and English because my mother's an English teacher. The wife of the man that ran the school was French, so I can sing lots of songs in French okay. and Chumash Rashi. So that was my education. Till the age of 14, that was the sort of bubble that I grew up in, practicing on a very orthodox level. Also exposed to the wider Glasgow community, but very much aware that we were different. We were the rabbi's children. When my family um, moved to Israel, we made Aliyah when I was 14, actually the day after my 14th birthday. That was a massive culture shock for me. I'd always been the frummest one and suddenly in the Haredi Beis Yaakov that I was inserted into, I was the one from Chutzlar, it's the one who didn't grow up in Israel, the one who'd been exposed to all these trafe ideas like pasta from Tesco. As a family, it was hard for all of us to adjust, but particularly for me, I didn't settle at all and I came back to Manchester. And within the Haredi world, there's a level of naivety and trust where we sort of say, oh, if you've got a long beard and a black hat, you're probably someone I can trust. And that sort of thing led to me moving in with a family where I was sexually abused by the father in that household. So that was from when I was 15 until about three, four months after my 16th birthday. It stopped because his wife walked in in the middle of the night and found him in my room. And then I was very quickly, the situation was managed. I was moved out into another family. The Manchester Beth Din kind of were tasked with handling it. That was my introduction to sexuality. When I was 18, I got married. Didn't really have the concept that this was something criminal. I knew it was wrong. And I kept telling people about it, that this man was a dangerous man. But I didn't know that you could go and report this sort of thing to the police. I didn't even know that the police could help me. I didn't have that in my world's experience. And then I went on, had three children. When my youngest was a baby, he was about three weeks old, um, I got a phone call from the police to say that they had had a complaint from somebody else about this man. And that person had told them that I might be willing to speak to them. And I did speak to them and that kick-started a process that went on for about three years. It was very exciting. Someday someone will make a Hollywood blockbuster about it. There's like a high-speed chase through Jerusalem Central bus station. Eventually he was caught, he was brought back to... Wait, wait, seriously? No, seriously. Okay, carry on, yeah. He was brought back to England, he faced trial and giving evidence for me in a courtroom was the very first time I'd been taken seriously enough that my voice was valid. For a woman to give evidence in a basin just doesn't happen. A woman can't give evidence. You're not kosher laedus. You're not a, a kosher witness. Really? Really. Is that in 
all bet dins or is that just... And in an Orthodox run base din, a woman is not allowed to give evidence. She might be given a hearing, they might listen to what she has to say, but her witness statement doesn't carry any weight in halacha. I didn't be- know that. Because she has a vagina. Okay, well, okay. So what went on for me in that courtroom was a phenomenal new experience. It was like, wow. So the conviction almost became a bonus at the end because I'd already had this experience of I was allowed to get up and I was allowed to say my piece. They stopped to listen to what I had to say. They questioned what I had to say. They examined it, but it was taken seriously. And it was put to a jury of my peers who I will forever be grateful to because they were just ordinary people who had to listen to some really horrible stuff. They listened and then they decided that they couldn't come to a decision and it was a hung jury, which meant that the police, the CPS were undeterred and they thought they sort of doubled down and said, we're going to do this again. They went back, they got more evidence, they flew in a witness from Australia, they went to Gateshead and sort of sat in people's dining rooms until they agreed to give evidence. They put the whole case back together again and it was actually a great experience for me giving evidence the second time, it was as if I'd been allowed to rehearse my giving of evidence because the defense didn't really change their questions at all, but the prosecution had. And the second trial was much more thorough and um, ended in a conviction. He was then sentenced to 13 years and eight months with five years extended license. After that, it was as if someone had opened the dam I'd spoken up and had been believed and other people wanted to speak up as well. People started talking to me and talking to other people about their experiences, not just of being sexually abused, but of the community ignoring their experiences of sexual abuse, covering up abuse that occurred, enabling further abuse to carry on. I've spoken to many other victims who were abused by the same man as I was, and then other people who weren't abused by him, but had their experiences covered up by the same people who covered up my abuse for so long. How long did it take you to be able to process it quite easily? In terms of outwardly, you can process it quite easily. I'm not commenting on anything that's going on, right? If you don't mind me asking. So, first of all, it hasn't happened overnight. And um, sometimes I'll be able to speak about it and it comes very easily. Other times I'll expect it to come easily. And then later on that night, I'll be reliving things. For me, it's an opportunity to turn what happened to me into building my community into a safer place. I can take what happened to me, which was definitely a negative experience, and turn it into something positive. And I can use the experiences that I've had so that other people can learn from them. That's all I want to do is make my community safer and better. What I struggle to understand, and I I really struggle to understand this, is what is the Bettdin's justification when that happens? So they hear a rumour of sexual harassment going on and they hear it from multiple people and then they go, what, the community is more important than releasing this information and making sure that everyone's safe? So I think people have different justifications for themselves. The first thing is that there's massive cognitive dissonance. If Rabonim or community leaders admit to themselves that there is a problem, then they have to enforce real systemic change and no one really wants to do that. So it's easier and they would also have to acknowledge that they allowed this to go on for a really long time. So it's easier just not to talk about it. It doesn't seem like it would be that bigger systemic change, just stop the sexual abuse it doesn't seem it would involve real systemic change because we've got people in very senior positions in our community who are themselves offenders and it would be scandalous if those people were exposed 
And it would also be scandalous if the community knew how long other people knew about that abuse for. It's a scandal on the scale of the Catholic Church, except the Catholic Church keep better records. What are you now doing? Because I know that you're now doing stuff. Yeah, let's talk about the positive stuff that I'm doing. First of all, I'm an ISPA, which is an independent sexual violence advisor for a charity called Migdala Muna. Migdala Muna was set up by Yehudis Goldsobel, who is a one-woman powerhouse, my ultimate hero, and there's a picture of her on my wall over there. And the role of an independent sexual violence advisor in ISFA is to provide independent support to people who have experienced sexual abuse or had their lives affected by it. Not all organizations providing ISFA services do this, but we would also provide support to people who, for example, their spouse was a victim of abuse or their child. And we're there to help them make a decision to, to inform them and to signpost them as to whether or not they want to report that abuse to the police if they make the decision that they want to to facilitate that and then we can carry that through all the way to literally sort of almost holding their hand in the witness box and then also if they make the decision that they don't want to to validate that decision because it's not on victims to make the community safer that's not victims job and to help them in in any way that that we can. It could be that they've got other issues stemming from the abuse that they need support with and we can signpost and support appropriately. Migzal also offers support groups and in communities such as ours where there's such enormous shame that people bear and people keep secrets for a really, really long time. Being able to sit in a room with other people who've experienced similar things and to just know that you're not alone and to find similarities and be able to create peer support is a very powerful thing and it's a very powerful weapon against shame. So that's Migdal. That's my day job. Then besides for that, I have founded Nachamu. Nachamu is a think tank examining extremism in the Jewish community. And when I say extremism, that's harms that people perpetrate either in the name of religion or for ideological reasons. There's a phenomenon where, for example, we deny boys secular education and that leads directly on to those boys then getting married, needing to support themselves. There are further harms when it comes to access that people have to contraceptives that leads directly to large families. What do you think is the natural result of that? It's benefit fraud. So these are all harms that are being perpetrated on people in the name of religion. And the outcomes are both criminal and harmful. How do you switch off? So one of the brilliant things I'm doing for myself at the moment is I've started a degree at Salford University in social policy. Okay, fine, you're not doing enough. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so social policy... Well, it's the sort of stuff I, I read about and talk about for fun anyway. So it's really giving a sense of gravitas to the things that I know from life experience, but an academic underwriting of that for me feels very solid and affirming. Um, and then for fun, I have three beautiful children who fill my every waking moment with joy. I know, I know I seem like quite a throwaway question, but it's everything seems quite intense. It is. It is quite intense. I'm an intense person and, um, and maybe I thrive a bit on the pressure of all these things. I do occasionally read books <laughs> that are not about the topics <laughs> I work in. Like sometimes I do. So if someone's listening now and they have been through similar experiences, but they're currently in the Haredi community, but you don't know who listens, you don't know who downloads. So, so can I just stop you there? Yeah. Sexual abuse happens in all parts of the Jewish community and this kind of intimidation and cover-up happens in all sectors of the community. This is not a Haredi problem. This is a Jewish problem. 
Okay, so I acknowledge my misrepresentation. So if anyone is listening and they are a victim of abuse and they haven't told anyone, what should their first step be? The first step is to decide whether or not they want to tell anyone. They don't need to if they don't want to. Sometimes telling someone is not the right thing. People can go onto Magdalena Munoz's website and there's a lot of information on there and reach out to us via that if they feel comfortable doing so. What will probably happen is they'll either send a text or leave a message on an answering machine and an ISFA, either me or someone else who works for Migdal, will get back to them and just either have an initial conversation over the phone or make an arrangement to meet up just to hear them out and they don't need to and they shouldn't start thinking that they need to start off by telling someone their whole story, although some people want to. For me, it's much more about ensuring that they have access to services and that they feel supported and not that they need to justify or explain things to anyone. But that's if you're talking about sexual abuse. If you're talking about other kinds of religious harms, so if somebody's being pressured to get married, for example, we have lots of people who get in contact with Nahamu where they are the eldest of their siblings and there's a lot of pressure on them to get married because there's siblings sort of waiting behind them and they're themselves maybe they're not sure if they want to be married maybe they are lgbtq or questioning maybe they just want education before they get married and there's this pressure to not keep their siblings waiting if a person was in that position you can get in touch with us via our website, which is nahamu.org, and we can signpost you to relevant services. And if you're worried about other things like denial of education, whether you're a student yourself or if your children are in an environment where they're not receiving an education, we'd like to hear from you and signpost you to people who can help. And now let's fast forward to a week ago. So there's been a bit of a gap of a few months since we last had our initial chat since then, because it's been so long, because of you know what, let's 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 blame a pandemic. Um, but we are here, and I just wanted to have a second part because I I, I know that there's recently been at the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. Uh, there's been a statement from uh, Yehudis Gold Sobel, who is your She's the director of the charity I work at. It's a 24-page statement. Um, I've now read it twice. It is very, very sobering reading. I kind of half knew some of those things, but I didn't quite realise the extent to which it was across the whole community. Would you say that the Migdala Muna statement was more candid than others? When Migdal put in their statement, it was a response to a set of questions that the inquiry had asked. Migdal responded to those questions. I don't know if candid is the most useful word. The responses in that statement reflect the work that Migdal does. Fair enough. I suppose what what, what I was meaning is that there's, there's no punches pulled, I think is fair to say, which might not be the best analogy for what we're talking about. But in terms of you're not alluding to various facts like you are. And when I say you, I'd like to clarify a meaning Migdal Muna as an organisation rather than you personally. Calling out specific people, specific organisations, specific ways of working. Were you nervous that that might put you in the line of fire? The point of assisting the uh, of providing the, the statement was to assist the inquiry, and ultimately, the inquiry is there to provide some kind of accountability 
at the end of that line, you know, help the inquiry, the inquiry helps people working in the sector, but really it's about helping the children and the people who are not getting the services that they need and are being and are being silenced. So there's no point in not being candid. What's the point in pussyfooting around? If people are practicing in ways that are not safe, or if people don't um, have as broad a knowledge as they should have when they're working in this sector, then that's something that needs to be improved. There's nothing to be gained from sort of skirting around the subject. I understand that, and it's about safeguarding and about children, child safety, and it's it's binary. I understand that. So I know that there were some mainstream organisations within the Jewish community that feel that the work that you do as an organisation is presented in a way that's too raw. Is that a fair point? So I need to clarify again, I don't speak for Migdal Minar, I speak for myself. I think it, the work that we do and the voice that we speak with is, is raw. That's a fair point. But is it too raw? What's too raw? To me, too raw is a child who's not being safeguarded. That's what's too raw. That's what I'm not prepared to live with. Uncomfortable listening and difficult work. That's what adults have to just deal with. It might be uncomfortable. Suck it up because this community needs to do some really uncomfortable work to improve and to make it a better place for all our children to grow up and not just hurry children. Children across the board deserve improved working practices. That work, kind of to my mind as a an outsider to the work that you do, seems like a rather uphill struggle. In terms of there are rather a lot of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years of these inbuilt systems that are there to discourage members of the Jewish community from coming forward and talking to the authorities. I didn't actually know what the, to my shame, I didn't know what the name, the name, the exact name of it was, but the, uh, uh, Masira, 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 Masira. Um, uh, you know about this idea that you shouldn't report on a fellow Jew to the authorities. I kind of get the concept in terms of as a community, we've had a history of authoritative organisations not particularly treating us very well. At the same time, this sounds like I'm defending the indefensible, which I'm not. I'm just asking, how do you help Jewish organisations? understand the nuance between what is definitely something that should be reported on to the authorities and what would be covered by this concept? So first of all, it's really important, this point that you're making, it's it's a natural, understandable um, defensive reflex that has been you know, established for really good reasons in the Jewish community. And I completely understand where people are coming from, but times move on. And as a Jewish people, we are so adaptable. We have established ourselves, built ourselves up, been persecuted, fled, found a new place, put down roots again, established ourselves again. We know how to adapt. What we have now in the UK is a Medina Shal Chesed. It's a that means you know a government of kindness. We're a resourceful community and Part of being resourceful is recognizing what we're really up against. So recognizing when we have something to fear and when we actually don't have something to fear. Part of resilience as a community is being honest with ourselves about what threats we face and what threats no longer exist. And at the moment, that's not a legitimate threat that we're facing. 
I'm not sure I'm convinced on that point when when you think about the increase in anti-Semitism in the past few years. And I, and I, I don't particularly want to go down that rabbit hole either. So I would ask, like, on, like, on what basis are you saying that? You say the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of recorded anti-Semitic crimes, that's obvious, I'm not disputing that at all. But really, is there anti-Semitic policy changes? Are there people interpreting policy in an anti-Semitic way? Do we have reason, any reason to believe that the government is anti-Semitism that people have faced has been rooted in the authorities. At the moment, we've got the authorities squarely on our side, pouring hundreds of thousands of pounds into the CSD, providing so much support to the community in response to rising anti-Semitism. I think it's really unfair to say that there's a legitimate fear that the authorities are anti-Semitic. Fair enough. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I suppose maybe if a certain other person might have won the general election, people might have felt differently. But we are where we are. Um. We ab- absolutely. And I'm not saying I'm not here saying this is always going to be the case or this has always been the case. What I'm saying is I'm judging the situation where we are. And I can say right now that's not a legitimate threat. Towards the beginning of the statement, there was the mention of moral obligation to destroy the myths and secrecy surrounding sexual abuse and violence. What are those myths? So the myths are exactly what you just pointed. Authorities are anti-Semitic. The myth that people who are reported to the authorities will be subject to anti-Semitic policies or anti-Semitic hate if they are in prison. You know, that's just not what happens. Myths around shame and um, liability on the victim. So lots of victim blaming messaging around the victim wanted it or the victim encouraged it. That that absolutely needs to be crushed and blotted out. It's one thing to say and it's another to do. There is a strong suggestion, and I'm not sure it's explicit, I think it's implicit, that abuse is multi-generational. So it's gone on for generations after generations and and many of the abusers will have been abused themselves and so they'll they'll struggle to understand why the actions that they're taking are bad how do you communicate that to a community that doesn't want to be spoken to okay so first of all let's just break down what you said um it can happen that somebody who was abused goes on to abuse someone else it's absolutely not a given and it's not statistically going to happen either um, people have a choice in how they act and um, if they make the choice to offend that's their responsibility and it can never ever be excused as while well, they were abused as a child and and it works the other way as well people who are who were abused often have this fear because of that myth that you just brought up oh well I'm really scared that I'm going to go on to abuse others and then we have to break down that myth for them. That doesn't mean that multi-generational abuse doesn't happen. That often happens in interfamilial abusive situations where abuse is kind of the norm in certain families and that's a really, really sad state of affairs um, and it's really hard to unpack. It's really a separate question that you ask, how do you speak to a community that doesn't want to listen? I think I don't think it's true that people don't want to listen. People talk about specifically about the Haredi community as as being hard to reach. I think it's such an unfair statement. Community is possibly hard of hearing. Um, that was my friend Ben Kastan who came up with that kind of differentiation. I think it's really useful to use that. People who are hard of hearing, maybe you need to speak in a different way. Maybe you need to change your tone 
maybe you need to speak a bit slower, maybe you need to speak a bit more clearly, maybe you need to repeat what you said, but it doesn't mean that they don't want to hear. And it certainly doesn't mean you shouldn't speak to them. How should they be spoken to? I think we should speak to all people with the same messaging. Children deserve to be safe. Nobody can touch you if you don't want to be touched. Children under the age of, under certain ages are too young to be able to consent and cannot give informed consent. The messages ultimately they are exactly the same for everyone. It's just the way and the amount of times you have to repeat them to use and you know, the amount of times you're willing to just repeat it again and again and again. So th- th- things like the age of consent, which in UK law is 16, in Jewish law for girls is 12, I believe. I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong. That's quite a big difference. And especially from the perspective of general society, I, I don't think there's many people that would defend 12 as the age of consent. When that is religious law, and so many of the people that you're trying to reach put that law as exclusive law above any others, does that not cause immense difficulties in changing behaviours? So it can cause difficulty, and you'll see that that point was raised in Miguel's statement. And that didn't come from the depth of the Haredi community, that came from the London Beth Din. There are people who will hold that up as binary halachic status quo. Um, I'm not going to start arguing halacha with people, but my position is there are other, many, many different facets to halacha, and being able to quote one part in isolation is just not helpful and it's also wrong. This is the country that we live in. We have dinner, demachusa dinner, the law of the land applies, and it's just not helpful for people to quote bits of halacha in isolation. So just following on from that, though, is it then helpful to have a halachic framework in, in terms of if you can provide a halachic reasoning as to why this is bad, then could that help change the community for the better? If I could provide a halachic reasoning? If, if one if someone could i'm not saying you i'm i'm saying if if one could the short answer is no because halacha is is not as binary as it's often made out to be halacha responds to the information put out in front of it right so if you tell a dayan x y and z he'll respond and say okay so the halacha is a if you add additional information say the situation is also b c e f g so I don't need and nobody needs to set out a new halachic reasoning. The Dayanim making these decisions within a halachic framework, and we can have a de- separate discussion about how these discussions shouldn't be happening in a Bethdin anyway. Um, but when these questions come before a Bethdin, it's a question of so what information is being considered here and the full spectrum of the damage done to children when listened to halachic response to that is not well she was 12 so she must have consented that's just that's not halacha not that it should need clarifying but i'm clarifying it anyway that that's just an argument that i saw that i wanted to just present because it you're absolutely right to raise it because people raise it um so the question needs to be asked and i hope i've answered it but it's it's just wrong we we can talk about junk science that's junk halacha and there's a feeling that this is only a haredi problem but there is a there is compelling evidence that it's not and it's across the board. How can the 
the mainstream Jewish community do the navel gazing necessary to introspection, Hayden? Introspection. I prefer navel gazing. It's fun. Uh, so how how can other Jewish organisations have the introspection to recognise that their safeguarding policies can more often than not protect the perpetrator rather than the victim? Okay, so now I'm on my favourite subject. We have a, a phenomenon in, in the wider Jewish community where our policies are written in a way that deflects risk from the institution rather than promotes well-being in service users. And that's just a problem that I faced um, as a parent in the community, as a professional in the community. It's an attitude that people have that really needs to be broken down. We've got this reflexive bucking where every allegation and every, every kind of criticism and anything that comes up, it feels to people like something they just immediately need to respond to in a defense um so it's all reactionary instead of thinking constructively and creatively how can we grow as a community how can we grow as a service what can we do to make this um the best most wholesome experience for our service users be that people attending shul or going to a youth a youth group or you know wherever they might be engaging with a service just thinking constructively with a you know, growth orientated mindset about what can we do the best practice, not what's the bare minimum that the state demands of us. What not not what's the bare minimum that we need to do just in case something kicked off to make sure that we wouldn't bear any carry any risk. It's about what can we do to make these children as safe as possible. And we're not there yet at all. Right. It's kind of it's a marker of my lucky and sheltered upbringing that I didn't even realise that so many of these abuses would happen at sleepaway camps and, and, and synagogues because I just didn't think that it was feasible that that would happen. I found that quite shocking, actually. Yeah, but Hayden, I don't think there's any way to map or guess. I mean, we can look at statistics and historic incidents and think about where risk-wise, where abuse might occur. Abuse occurs absolutely everywhere, wherever there's an opportunity for it to, to occur, if there's an offender around. That's not what I'm particularly interested in. What I'm interested in is what do we do as a community to address it when it does occur? And how do we prepare our, our services to make them unwelcome environments for perpetrators? I just want to move on to Ofsted, if that's okay. So in recent years, Ofsted has given very low grades, you know, inadequate inadequate grades to a number of Jewish schools that were previously good or outstanding. Is there a relationship between what's happening now in terms of the child abuse allegations and the Ofsted scores, or have I just plucked something out of thin air? That... It's a false correlation. I mean, it's really interesting what's going on with Ofsted, but it's really nothing to do with it. What happened with Ofsted? was there was a piece of work done that had a look at who was inspecting a subset of Haredi schools that kept getting outstanding despite there being knowledge of these schools, like the kids not being able to read and write English. So how were they getting outstanding? And a piece of work was done looking at that, and it was traced to, I think, four Haredi inspectors who were inspecting and then grading them very, very generously. 
Like it's it's not true that they were outstanding and then suddenly they were downgraded. They were never outstanding to begin with. They should never have had those grades to begin with. Um, and then they were reinspected by people who had no connection to them. And mo- you know, many of them were significantly downgraded. Then this is complicated by a different factor. There was a sort of set of standards for private schools, but it was so vague of what standards they actually had to meet that it was really difficult to accurately capture what was going on in these schools to be able to um, to give them the grade that sort of showed that these was barely functioning under the, the normal definition of what a school is. There was an attempt to take the Equality Act as a way to say, right, so these schools are not compliant with the Equality Act and therefore we'll downgrade them. I think that was not the most best thought out approach. I think the Equality Act is a complete red herring when children can't actually read and write. And I'm really happy that that's now been addressed first by the um, independent school standards and now that was for independent schools and now it's been almost equivalent by the Department for Education for other schools. Clearer standards for the schools to be teaching secular studies in line with the national curriculum and the specific Equality Act failings haven't been removed completely, but less of an issue, at least for primary schools. So will the correction, regrading, whatever you want to call it, of the schools increase the level of distrust when it comes to child sexual abuse allegations and make are you saying are you saying because because people see us as the enemy now they're also not going to report child abuse to the police is that what you're saying that's the point i'm making yes yeah i think like hayden don't infantilize us we are a normal community of normal people no i think ultimately people want their children to be safe and that's what people want whether there are structures in the community who say, well, it's, we, we can't have, you know, your children will have to, you'll have to accept that your children are safe because the, if we bring in these standards, so that will mean we have to bring in secular studies as well. And, you know, those kinds of conversations might happen, but ultimately virtually every parent in the Haredi community wants their child to be safe. Well, when you say it like that, it sounds very obvious. Are you concerned about repercussions that would have an impact on you personally? for the work that you're doing. You know what? Yeah, they've done anything that could have had an impact. What are they going to do? Nobody's going to risk a prison sentence because they want to annoy me. So I'm quite protected on that front. Want to ostracize me? Do you want to not talk to me? Do you want me to not come to your shawl? If it's a shawl like that, I probably don't want to come to it in the first place. I just go around doing my thing, really. Do you find that people are, on the whole, supportive of what you're doing, openly or privately? Or are they openly hostile? I'm just curious. Like, what? What's yeah. you, you walking around on your day to day basis? How? Uh, how do people react? Because what you do is most quite visible. Pe- yeah, um, most people on a day to day basis are publicly supportive. So there's a difference between public publicly supportive, as in meet me in the streets, you know, happy to talk and chat and shout good morning or whatever as I drop off my kids. Um, definitely, whether they would you know, agree with me on a public platform, possibly not. Like, that's fine. And certainly people are hostile to me on public platforms. That's fine. There can be more than one narrative. There's space for more than one narrative. I'm more than happy to to enter discussions publicly. 
that doesn't worry me. I, don't, I just always finish off with, with just people. It's not about, you know, specifically child safety, which is obviously really, really important. It's about, it's not about in, individual or isolated incidents that need addressing. That is one thing that needs, you know, we need to talk about, but it's about in general, humanizing everybody in this community, looking at us all as individuals with the right to be safe. Yodis Fletcher, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Until next time, Baglers.